Welcome, everyone. I'm so thankful to greet you today. I'm so thankful that you're joining us for worship through our online campus. If you've got a Bible with you, I want to invite you to take it and go with me to the Old Testament book of Psalms. And when you get to the Old Testament book of Psalms, find Psalm 95 and just hold that ready <clears throat> for a few minutes. This is the third and final weekend of a brief sermon series called Made for Worship. And as we begin, I want to just ask you a question. How do you determine whether your worship experience has been good or bad? And I'm talking about our worship experience in terms of when we come together in a setting like this as a spiritual community. I know it's certainly different for those of you who are doing this in a digital platform and a digital venue, but uh, I hope that you understand that you're not alone in this moment. You are worshiping with many, many other believers I imagine that more often than not, we would answer that question something like this. We would say, I know my worship experience has been good if I feel good afterwards. Or in other words, I know my worship experience has been good if it makes me feel good. And to be honest, that's almost to be expected with the way church is so much of the time today. I mean, honestly, over the past 20 or so years, many churches have discovered that the way to experience growth and the way to experience success is to provide worship experiences that cater to what we might call a consumer mentality, which means they're often more about entertaining or satisfying the worshiper than they are focusing on the one who is being worshiped. But that approach is a far cry from the kind of worship Jesus was talking about when he spoke these words in John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. I want you to look at them with me on the screen. Jesus says, Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, Jesus spoke those words in the context of a conversation he had with a Samaritan woman one day as he sat down next to a well where she was and asked her if she would give him a drink. And while the meaning of those words need to be understood first and foremost in the context of that conversation, there's also a simple or I might say a broader application that moves beyond that particular context. And that's this, to worship in spirit means that we worship with our whole heart. It means our worship comes from within, that there's a genuine emotional element to it. So we're not just going through the motions. To worship in truth means that we need to have a knowledge of God that guides our worship. In other words, we need to worship God in a way that's consistent with the truth that he's revealed about himself in his word. But what happens in worship so much of the time is we focus the majority of our attention on the spirit or on the emotional side of worship and we water down or we minimize the truth. And I hope you see that that formula is what makes it easy for us to decide whether or not our worship experience has been good based on whether or not we feel good once it's over. But there's an inherent danger in that approach. When our goal is first and foremost to make our corporate worship, when we gather together for specific times of worship, to make our corporate worship enjoyable so everyone goes home feeling good, we never challenge anyone to a deeper life. 
We never challenge anyone about the direction of their life. We never challenge anyone about the possibility of sin in their life, about the possibility of the need for repentance. We never challenge anyone for the need of holiness or the need for sacrifice, and I could go on and on and on. Now, I'm not suggesting that we don't make every effort to make worship a good experience. I'm not suggesting that suggesting rather that we choose music that no one likes or we preach sermons that no one can relate to or anything like that. But I am suggesting that we make it our goal to understand what the Bible says about the worship of God and that we follow the words of Jesus in John chapter 4 and verse 24 when he says God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And that's what brings us to Psalm 95. And so, Hopefully, you've got your Bibles open there, and if so, I want you to follow along with me as I read. It's not a very long psalm, only 11 verses, and I'm going to read all of it, so follow along. I'm going to begin in verse 1. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods, In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. And so I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never rest. We'll stop right there. That's not a very pleasant ending to the psalm, but we'll stop right there. Now, I didn't plan to do this from the beginning when it came to this series made for worship. When I outlined my first two messages, I simply focused on a single word to make each point or truth that I wanted to teach or emphasize. And so, since I did that with the first two messages for the sake of consistency, I thought I'd do that for the final message as well. So, uh, if you're someone who likes to take notes, I'm just going to give you three words, three words that I'm going to pull from this psalm, either that are stated in the psalm or implied in the psalm, that I think are powerful when it comes to understanding worshiping God in a way that's consistent with his desire to be worshiped in spirit and in truth. And the first word is the word us. Just the simple word us. And I <coughs> say that, excuse me, because from the very beginning of this psalm that is clearly about worshiping God, we see an emphasis on the word us. In fact, there are five specific times when the psalmist literally uses the words, let us. Psalm 95.1 says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our, sal- our salvation. Excuse me. Psalm 95.2 says, Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. Psalm 95.6 says, Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us, there's number five, kneel before the Lord our maker. What lesson is to be learned from this? Well, it's really simple. Corporate worship, and again, I'm talking about these specific scheduled opportunities for worship where we come together as a spiritual community. Corporate worship is a group effort. That's the way it's supposed to be. 
God calls his people, he calls his children to come together in his name and worship him with one heart and one mind. And the Bible makes it clear that worshiping together as a community should be viewed as not just a special opportunity, but it should also be viewed as a special blessing. That's why David wrote in Psalm 122 and verse 1 these words, I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go, let us go to the house of the Lord. Now, you can worship alone in your home or in some other space. Maybe some of you who are watching right now, it's just you and you feel in some sense like you're alone. Last week in our message, I told you that when you draw near to God through a daily quiet time, you can view that as a personal time of worship, a time of worship alone with God. But in spite of what many people want to say, that's not enough. We need to worship with one another. We need to worship with other believers. I could preach an entire message on this because there are so many different things the Bible says about the importance or the necessity of believers worshiping together in community. But for the sake of time, I'll only mention one thing. If you go back to the book of Acts, and in particular Acts chapter 2, you see the beginning and you see a description of the very first church, Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And here's how that very first church is described. This is Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, which I'm sure are familiar words to many of you who are listening. This is what's said about that first church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, know how it starts. They, together, devoted themselves together to four different things. And one of the things that they devoted themselves to was fellowship. The word used for fellowship there in Acts 2.42 is the Greek word koinonia, and it means partnership. It means sharing. When you become a Christian, you become partners with Jesus, and you become partners with every other believer. And one of the things that partnership does is it brings you together for worship, or at least one of the things it's supposed to do is it brings you together for worship. And that's something that doesn't change. Our world can change. Our culture can change. But this devotion, like they had in the first church, this devotion to the partnership with other believers in worship, that doesn't change. And one of the most significant ways that's lived out is by coming together at designated times, at designated places, to be one in worshiping God. One final thing that I think this emphasis on the word us teaches us or reminds us of when it comes to worship is that corporate worship It's not all about me and it's not all about you because it's something we do together. It's something we do together. So many people come to these scheduled or designated times of worship today with the primary goal of having their need met or the primary goal of having some experience with God, receiving something from God, some kind of emotional experience, or maybe coming together so that they can be entertained or distracted or whatever it might be. Now, do those kinds of things happen in worship? Oftentimes, absolutely they do. We have experiences with God. We have needs met. Sometimes, you know, if your heart's not where it needs to be, you can be distracted for an hour or you can be entertained. But the primary purpose for being in worship is not about you. It's not about me. It's not even about us together. It's about God. It's about giving God the honor and the glory that he alone deserves. 
And while it may seem like something that's small and insignificant, the fact that over and over again, multiple times in the beginning of this psalm that we're studying about worship, we read the words, let us, when it comes to worshiping God, it says, let us multiple times. That's not an accident. Remember, every word in the scriptures is God-breathed, inspired by God. That's not an accident. This is a God-given reminder that one of the most crucial elements of worship is that it is to be done together by us, by all of us. We worship God best when we worship him together. Let me give you the second word. The second word is the word participation. Write that down somewhere. And I want to be clear about this. When it comes to corporate worship, again, what we're doing right now is we gather as a body, even though, it, again, I've said it before and I'll say it again, it's different because we're doing it in a digital venue. When we come together to worship, we can't minimize the importance of participating, of participation. When you read about worship in the Bible, especially in the Psalms, you see that worship is often seen as an act or an action, a physical act or a physical action. The Hebrew people would express their worship through their posture and by their actions. Right here in our Psalm, Psalm 95.1, you read, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Psalm 95, 6, come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. You see it in other Psalms as well. Psalm 47 in verse 1 says, clap your hands, all you nations, shout to God with cries of joy. Psalm 63, 4 says, I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. Action, acts of worship. Last week, we spent time looking at 1 Chronicles chapter 16 and a very special service that David organized for the entire nation of Israel to celebrate the bringing of the Ark of the Covenant to the city of Jerusalem. What we didn't talk about was the actual transport of the Ark to Jerusalem. So look at the screen and these words that describe David's behavior as the Ark was being brought to Jerusalem. This is David, who is the king of Israel. This is 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. It says, David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. And when the text says David danced, friends, that means he really danced, so much so that his wife, Michael, who was watching from a window in the distance, was embarrassed and disgusted that he... Her husband, the king, would behave that way in front of other people. And so she confronted David about that afterwards, about his dancing that was a part of his worship. And he responded by saying in 2 Samuel chapter 6, the latter part of verse 21 and the first part of verse 22, these words, I will celebrate before the Lord. Now listen to this. He said, I will become even more undignified than this. Here's the point. Whether you're talking about bowing down or kneeling or clapping your hands or lifting your hands or even dancing like David did, worship often includes some level of physical participation. It's interesting that C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, wrote these words. (coughs) (coughs) Excuse me. It is wrong... For us to think that bodily position makes no difference in one's prayer life. We are physical beings 
Whatever you do with your body affects your soul. I think the same thing can be said about the experience of corporate worship. God made us with physical bodies, and so what we do with our bodies makes a difference with our attitude. Here's one really simple, practical way to think about it. Feelings follow physiology. When you bow your head, when you bend your knee, when you lift your hands, your body is moving in a direction that your spirit can follow. Now, having said that, here's the deal, and I want you to listen to me really, really close because I don't want there to be any misunderstanding at all about what I'm saying. I know that here in our church, we aren't terribly demonstrative in our worship services, not here at our Mount Pleasant campus or in any of our impact sites, any of our impact campuses. We don't dance in our services, and there's never been anyone, at least to my knowledge, who has fallen face down to the ground in church, at least not on purpose. I do remember coming to church on a Saturday night several years ago, and when we got, when we began the service with our time of singing, that part of our worship experience, there was a young girl who came down and stood just to the right of where I sit each and every week, and she began to dance. During all the songs, she danced. Now, I'd never seen her before. She wasn't very old. She was just maybe a young teenager, and uh, there wasn't anything really, you know, big and bold about her dancing. She was just kind of, you know, you know, she was very subtle, you know, maybe she'd been to ballet class. She was doing some twirls and some spins, and it all looked kind of elegant and uh, choreographed, honestly. But I didn't know what was happening. Honestly, my first thought, my first thought was that our worship and arts pastor, Brian Tabor, and our worship programming pastor at the time had put her up to this, and they were kind of punking me on Saturday night to see what kind of response I would have if somebody came down and literally started to dance in church. Uh, it was definitely different. I mean, it, it, it never happened again, and I never saw her again. Was it distracting to me? Honestly, it was a little distracting to me, and uh, it was distracting because I could see her out of the corner of my eye, and it was distracting because I was worried about what everybody else that was behind me was going to think about somebody standing up and dancing during the service. Definitely different. But let me just be really honest with you for a minute. I, I'm not sharing this truth about participation, the act of participating in different ways, physically even participating in a worship service. I'm not sharing this because I think that we somehow all need to be more demonstrative when it comes to our worship, outwardly demonstrative. I've never ever been someone uh, to judge other people based on what they look like or what they do or even what they don't do during a worship service from the musical part all the way to the very end uh, when we dismiss. I, I am a little offended when you fall asleep, I have to say that, but that's a whole other story. Everyone has the right to worship in their own way. But that being said, let me tell you something I do believe with all my heart. Everyone who comes, who gathers together with other believers for designated specific times of worship together as a community, everyone needs to participate. Even if your participation is very subtle. You know, for some people it might be that way. It might be really quiet and subtle. For some people it might be outwardly demonstrative in some level. But everyone needs to participate. 
everyone. I know that's a little bit more challenging right now uh, because so many are, are um, worshiping digitally. And maybe it's not as challenging. Maybe you feel more comfortable or more free in the privacy of your own home to be expressive in your worship than you do when you're surrounded by a lot of people. I think it's difficult at times for in-person worship because our worship center is never full. We, we have these social distancing guidelines that we still follow. We still follow the guidelines of the governor's mandate. And when he doesn't specifically say something that applies to us, then we default to the CDC. And so we're spread out. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, I came into the 11 o'clock worship service on Sunday morning from these back doors down the center aisle, and I stood there inside for just a few minutes, and I looked around me, and people were all spread out, and here's the deal. I didn't hear anyone singing. I heard the worship team on the platform singing, but I didn't hear anyone standing around me singing, and you know what? That didn't surprise me because it's kind of intimidating when you're in an, a, a pretty large room and, and there's not, it's not full and, and there's a lot of space between you and other people. If you really sing out, then people are going to hear your voice. And that's kind of intimidating. And so there's all kinds of challenges that come along with that. But the Bible still teaches us that participation is a part of worship. And we need to remember that. And so let me just share this one last thing with you. I've told you before over the years that one of the simple life principles that I live by is the truth that if you want your life to change, you need to change. And I think that applies to pretty much every part of life. Whether it's, you know, your your life as a student, whether it's your life in, in your marriage or in your, your, your work, your business, your personal finances, with friendships or whatever. If you want your life to change, you need to change. And that's fundamentally true because we have to take responsibility for our lives on a day in and day out basis. I believe this is true. I believe it also applies to worship. And if you're someone who comes to worship, the, ex- the, the, the experience of corporate worship, and it's less than satisfying for you, or you've got complaints, you've got more complaints than you do praises when it's over, then maybe what you need to do is take a look at yourself. If you want your worship to experience, if you want your worship experience to change, maybe you need to change. Maybe you need to sing, even if it's just quietly, because that's something you never do. Maybe you're not going to lift your hands in worship, no matter how moved you might feel, but maybe you just place your hand over your heart. Maybe rather than standing with your arms crossed like this, you've got your hand over your heart and your head bowed, and you're participating in a physical way with what's happening around you. The bottom line is, sometimes when the experience of worship is not all that it has to be, the first place you need to look is inside. One of the truths of this psalm and one of the truths of the scripture is that participation matters when it comes to worship. Let me give you one one last word, a third word real quickly, and that's the word truth. When I sat down to study this psalm, I quickly found myself getting overwhelmed by the sheer depth of the truth these words teach us about God. Now, I don't have time to go into it in detail, so let me give you just a really small look. In verses 1 and 2, we see the many ways we worship God, and the emphasis is on us. We already talked about that. And then we get to verses 3 through 5, and this is powerful because in verses 3 through 5, we see this incredible emphasis 
on the greatness of God. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. We see the greatness of God. In that verse 3, that simple verse 3 that says this, For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. That verse contains three names for God. In that one single verse that's so small, three names for God. The names El, Elohim, and Jehovah. The name El means highest and, and most high. It affirms the truth that God is, in fact, above all other gods. Our, our one true God is above all other gods. All other gods are false compared to him. The name Elohim is very similar to El. It, it speaks to his essence and his majestic rule. The name Jehovah speaks to him as Lord and Master. Very significant. We see the greatness of God. You get the verses 6 through the first part of verse 7. We see how we're to respond to God. The only right way to respond to the majesty of God is in humble um, adoration and in, 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 in humble subjection to the reality of who he is. Latter part of verse 7 through verse 11, we see a warning from the psalmist. Uh, verses 7 and 8 say, Today if you hear his voice, God's voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the desert. It's a reference, this Old Testament reference to a time when the Israelites grumbled and rebelled against God, and they paid a high price for that grumbling and rebellion as a result. Here's the bottom line, and I wish I could talk more about that. This is an incredibly, incredibly deep psalm in terms of teaching us fundamental truth about God. And our response to this, our worship in response to this should reflect an understanding of this truth about God. Our worship should reflect an understanding of the truth of who God is. And so when we worship together, we should worship with thanksgiving. We should worship with submission to his greatness. We should worship with obedience to whatever it is he's calling us to do. Understanding this truth of who God is is something that must, it must shape our worship. Our worship shouldn't be shaped by making us feel good, by catering to people like you and me. It's focused on God, focused on who he is and how we respond is an indication of our understanding of that truth. Uh, Worship, the truth is worship, friends. Genuine biblical worship is so much more than what any of us will often allow ourselves to experience. And I believe what author Brennan Manning said when he said these words, the real difference in the American church is not between conservatives and liberals or fundamentalists and charismatics, the real difference, he says, is between the aware and the unaware. And then he goes on to talk about the majesty of God, being aware in worship of the magnificence of God. And so when we come together for these times of of worship as a family, as a spiritual community, we need to come with a sense of expectation because we're coming as a community of faith to enter into and to recognize the holiness of God in a very specific setting and in a very specific way. And whatever it is he asks us to do, whatever the Holy Spirit prompts us to do in that setting, we need to respond with obedience because worship is not just another event on the calendar. It is, it needs to be an experience with God an experience with God. I want us to think about that, that reality. As I pray and Brian and the rest of the team comes to lead us in another small time of worship.
Father in heaven, thank you for the truth of Psalm 95 and help us to really embrace those words, us, and participation, and truth, and let those words mark our lives as we worship together as a family. No matter the setting, even in a digital venue like this, help us to allow those words to mark and craft our time of worship so we have an experience with you. And when you speak, when you move, help us to be willing to respond. In Jesus' name, amen.